Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Yeah, was, that, was that a great uh, last song? I mean, all the songs were great. And thank you, Karen, for, uh, for leading us. I don't know where you are, but um, thank you. That's awesome. And, um, and we're, we're continuing in this. We're, we're, we're singing a psalm that we're then going to read, which hopefully that, that all sounded the same, right? Same, same words coming out in this. And, and now we're going to just dig into it and just continue to devour Psalm 34 and see what God has for us in this. And as we've been doing this, right, we've been, we've been picking selective psalms, right? And then hopefully in your small groups and in your individual study, you're diving into the, like a, a complementary psalm, if you will, right? That, that kind of has the same, uh, same vibe, if you will, of, of the ones that we're, we're going through here. Um, capture this. Capture each one of these things. And, and we're only going to go through like 14 psalms. There's 150 of them. So there's plenty to go through and, and to, to dive into and to see what, what worshiping God looks like. Because it's not all the same. It's not cookie cutter, right? And we saw that uh, when we did Psalm 8 two weeks ago. It was, we're worshiping God for who he is and what he's done and the, the sunrises and the sunsets and the animals and DNA and math equations, right? For all of these reasons, God is incredible and worthy of just sheer praise, and then last week, we, we kind of saw the polar opposite of that, where we go, in our grief, and our sorrow, and our depression, and our anxiety, we can still worship God in the midst of that as well, right? And, and we worship God differently, and it sounds different, and it looks different, but it's still worship. This morning, what we're going to look at is, the, the word is hope. We're going to look at the fundamental, like the base, like foundation of why we worship God, this hope that we have in this life and in the life to come. And that's, and that's the fuel, if you will, for much of our worship. And so as we dive into this, I want us to be thinking about what we're trying to do across all of this, to equip all of us to proclaim the good news. That's what we're trying to do, right? Like when we read through Psalm 34... It should be equipping us to worship God in a different way because we have different circumstances that we're going to encounter. And the vast array of ways that we worship God signals to the world who doesn't know God who our God is and why he is worthy of worship 24-7, 365 days, independent of your circumstances, independent of anything that's going on in your life. He is worthy of worship, and the world needs to know why you worship him, independent of your circumstances. So before we dive in, let me, uh, let me pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. God, the fact that you give us your word, that you reveal yourself to us, that you teach us who you are, you show us your power, and you remind us of your ways. God, thank you. Thank you for choosing to love us. Thank you for grace. Thank you for sending your son. We ask this morning that as we read through your word, that you would pierce our hearts, that you would convict us, that you would take our stony hearts and shape them and mold them into what you want them to be, and that you would help us to think differently, that we would be renewed in our minds, after the image of your son, 
And we thank you for this time. We pray all this in his name. Amen. All right, hope. The world is cool with hope. If you ask anybody, is hope important? They're going to say yes. In fact, and I often talk about this just because I, I get kind of a, a different flavor of that in, in the military, right? Is they, they very much promote hope. It's important for us to have hope. That is part of our training, which it sounds weird, right? But they go, if you're in a bad circumstance, the thing that's going to keep you going is hope. When they talk about prisoners of war, different, you know, just whatever. I don't want to spend a lot of time getting into that. But, but they say it's hope. It's hope that motivates people. The hopeless perish. And so the world would agree that hope is a good thing. The problem is, is their hope is not a biblical hope. And we're going to look at that because their hope looks very different. Their hope is in their strength their ability to control their circumstances. Their hope is in tomorrow, I, I hope it's going to be better. It's luck, it's chance. It's not based on anything of any foundation. It's just we're going to roll the dice and maybe tomorrow's going to be better. I hope it is. That's it. Their hope is you know, that, that you know, the person's not going to offend them tomorrow or they're going to respond differently or, or their circumstance or that job is going to give them the contentment that they need or the money or, you know what I mean? Like whatever the circumstances are, we, they have this like vacuous hope that frankly is just pretend. It really is because they have no basis for hoping that any of those things are going to happen. It's just luck and chance and from, from their perspective. But our hope is a biblical hope. And I hope, that, I hope that as we go through this, that we see how different it is. We see the contrast between the hope of the world and the hope that God provides us through who he is, through his power, and through the way that he works. All right. So David's going to start off this with his hope. I'm going to give you a little bit of the context here. If you, if you read the first portion of that in your Bibles, um, it says, Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. I will tell you, uh, it's 1 Samuel 21. You can go back and, and, and read that. If, you're, if you read 1 Samuel 21 through 31, it's actually a really interesting read. Because David's all over the place. Mentally, emotionally, what he's doing. He actually goes back and fights against Israel. Um, he lies. He, he, t- he tells Abimelech that he's, that he's defeating Israel, but really he's conquering his guys. Uh, and then uh, at, some, at the very beginning of this, Abimelech, uh, fi- like they bring David to him, and David actually pretends to be um, insane. And like it says that he lets, lets spit go down his beard. So he's like, and, and, the, and Abimelech goes, like, this guy's crazy. Get him out of my, like, I'm not going to kill him. Yeah, he was the king of Israel, or, or he is a pretend king, or whatever. Get him out of here. And he survives. And so David just has, like, all of this just kind of mess happening. And when you read it, it's like he's like a top on a table. Like, he doesn't really know where he's going. His, his father, Saul, is after him and chasing him down and trying to kill him. And so he flees 
Abimelech is, is the, the, the name for the king of, of uh, the Philistines. He actually goes to Gath. You know who's from Gath? Goliath. So here's David going to people, right? Like it's just all sorts of messy. And so David's like just trying to figure out what's happening. This is kind of where it sets the context. And so most people think that David wrote this kind of right after like all of this was happening. And he's just trying to figure out what's the right answer? Which way do I go? My life's messy right now. I'm I'm like in between. I'm I'm living with uh, uh, people in a country that I'm supposed to hate, but, but they're protecting me. And the people that are supposed to love me, like my father, are trying to kill me. What do I do? And so this spurs Psalm 34, and we'll start in verse 1. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. And then he invites, right? He's got 600 men with him, David does, right? And so he says, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. David's a musician. I got to imagine that he's gathering his men around as they're kind of, because he's his dragging his men with him into, into all these places and doing all these things. And I got to imagine he, after lying, after deceit, after murdering people and going through all this stuff and trying to figure out what's, what does God want me to be doing here, he sings that. And you kind of go, well, that just seems a little... <laughs> Seems like that's a time when you'd want to like kind of push God out of your life, right? You're like, God, I'll, I'll get back to like the worshipy things, but right now I got to solve my problem. Anybody else do that? <laughs> Isn't that kind of how we operate? <laughs> like, I'm totally cool with going to God in prayer and spending time in his word, but when things get really rough, God, I'm going to need you to sit on the sidelines for a second because I got to control some stuff which sounds absolutely ridiculous, and yet we all do it. And so David marks this, and he says, don't do that. He's like, come with me. Let's, just, let's, let's magnify the Lord together. Let's exalt him together. And look what it says in verse 4. It says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. We're going to go back and forth in this psalm. There's some stuff where you're like, I don't understand exactly what that means. He, he says right here that David was delivered from all of his fears. Does that mean that God vanquished all of his enemies? And so he wasn't fearful anymore because he had nobody to fear? Historically, we know that's not accurate. So how then does, does David say this? How does God deliver us from all of our fears? What do you fear? What's fearful to you? I mean, this is this that's that's a tough question. You know, what what I'm fearful of is that something will happen to my family. And and what is that what does that show us? When you, when you sit there and think right now and you go, what do I fear? If the answer isn't separation from God, then it's an idol. 
If that's the thing that you fear most, more than anything else, that's your idol. Now, we all have them. And so this is why we spend time in God's word and we go, what, what ought I to be fearing? And he uses this throughout this. And this is, this is what's crazy about this psalm, right? Is he's saying, like, have hope. Here's, here's all the circumstances that you should have hope in. Fear God. <laughs> and you're like, hope and fear just doesn't seem like they go together very well. But the fear of God, the fear of who he is, is the thing that actually gives us hope. And we'll see that as we pour through this. And so the first thing, so there's, there's three things, and I've kind of alluded to them already. The first thing that we have to hope in is God's character, who he is. This is fundamentally different from what the world hopes in, right? God's character doesn't change. Who he is is fundamentally the basis for our hope. And, and let me just give you a contrast. I cannot place my hope in my lovely wife. I love her. But she will, at some point, fail me. Or has. I'm just joking. I mean, I'm not joking. But, <laughs> I, but I'm, I'm going backwards here. So we're just going to strike down from the record. I love my wife. She's awesome. Um, not awesome. Like, God's awesome. All right, I'm done. Um, right? You guys get this. This is, this is, our, this is our dilemma. But God's character is unchanging. Let's do it this way. I will fail you. In some circumstance, in some way, you're going to wish that I responded differently, said something, answered a text more promptly, whatever. I will. It's not my, maybe it's my character. You know, I, I don't know, right? But God won't. His character is steadfast. And so uh, David walks through this. And look what he says in verse 5. He says, those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. No shame in the presence of God. No shame. It's nothing. That's, our faces are radiant. Why? Because they're reflecting the glory of God, right? Because as God renews us, he sanctifies us, he changes our hearts more and more every single day. We become more and more like his son, and we reflect Christ to this world. And so we become more and more radiant. And so we're not ashamed. We're not, we're not walking around downcast. And we spent a lot of time talking about that last week, right? We're not walking around downcast. He goes, no, no, no. I am going to make you unashamed. How is that possible? How, how before a holy, amazing God, you take your and my life, and we say, how can we not be shameful in the presence of God? Because of his grace, because of his character, because of who he is, he has chosen to love you. He chose to create you. He's chosen to adopt you if you've placed your faith in his son. That's the point, right? And so, so God is for us, and so in God's presence, we're not ashamed because of his character, because of who he is. Now, if God was, was like, crazy or like changed his mind or, or did different things, then we would have no basis for hope. Tomorrow, he may go, you should be ashamed of yourself. 
But because we know who he, who he is and we know his character, we know that that will never happen. And so our faces are radiant. He's changing us into the image of his son. And we have no reason for shame. A long time ago, I, I, I think I drew or maybe I had some pictures. I think I had some pictures up. And it was like, like a lot of times we, we think that like we're on this path we want to be better. We're, we're trying to be better, but we're not there. And we see, we see people who seem to be better than us, like in, in just like how they live or whatever, and we look at that and we go, That's, if, I just, if I just got there, God would be more happy with me. It's a lie of Satan. <laughs> if we're going in the same direction to build God's kingdom, to glorify God, then you're an adopted child. Verse 6, David says, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. God hears us. God hears us. The God of all creation, right? We talked about this in the very first one, who, whose fingers move the celestial bodies, hears you. Here's you when you cry. He listens to you. He hears your pleas. He hears your moans and your grumblings. He knows your heart. This is his character that he listens. That's a character trait. Right? Some people are good listeners. Some people are not good listeners. God's a good listener. And he listens. To you and to me. Look at verse 7. It says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. The angel of the Lord, like if you do a study on the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord did some pretty aggressive things. <laughs> took out a lot of armies, took out a lot of people protecting God's people. God is powerful and he will encamp around you. He sets up a perimeter around you. If you, are, if you are an adopted child of God, he encamps around you and he protects you and he will deliver you. That's a promise. That's, that's his character. That's who he is. And then look at verse 8. It says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. You see, that, that word refuge, where, where do you go for refuge? What, what David says here is like, here they are, right? They're running around, they're, they're trying to figure out who they can believe, who will protect them, who's trying to kill them, right? Like, it's just all over the place. He's, most scholars think that he is actually in a cave right now writing this thing. That's his refuge, He's like looking around. He's like, this is it? I'm supposed to be the king of Israel. <laughs> this is what I, where I'm at. He goes, that's not my refuge. Where I'm at physically, that's not my refuge. My refuge is in God, in his character and who he is. All right, the second part that, that David goes into, he goes, don't just hope in God's character, hope in God's power. Look at verse 9 and 10. He says, Oh, fear 
the Lord. You, his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Well, this is easy. Fear God equals I get everything I want. <laughs> I get everything. We, we sang that, right? I hope you winced at that maybe a little bit. Because without the context, he will give me everything. Is he like some genie? Right? This is where you got to be careful. You got to be careful with some of the worship songs. I think that one's a good one because, again, the context. But this is what he says. Those who fear him have no lack. What does he mean by that? Because is that true for anybody in the room? <laughs> either, either none of us fear God, and we've never known anybody who's feared God, or we're misunderstanding what that means by we'll have no lack. Let's go with the latter. So what does he mean by that? Turn over to 1 John 5.14. John says basically the same thing. This is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That's easy. There's a really important word in there. (laughs) Four words. According to his will. That's the difference. Okay, so walk walk with me through this. Because this is so fundamentally important because you can go outside... Right, And you can hear, most probably on TV, health and wellness people, preachers, saying th- this. Like they'll, they'll, just, they'll just roll with that. And they'll just go, if you loved God more, he would give you more. Period. Dot. And, end of this. And, and the fact that you don't have means you must not love him. It's not true. It's not true. In, in fact, you could probably go to... I don't think there's a single character, single person in the Bible who would agree with that statement because they all lacked. (laughs) They all needed things. None of them were healthy, wealthy, and wise. None of them got everything that they wanted, right? Most of them died very painful deaths and lived lives of suffering and denial. So it might be true, but just not true in God's word. Let me rephrase that. It's not true. I was trying to, it's not true at all. Um, Just make sure I'm clear there. Strike that from the record. It's not true because it's not in God's word, right? So what does he mean by that? According to his will, how, how in the world do you and I have the same will as God? How, how do our, our wills become aligned? He changes the desires of our hearts. We talk about this all the time, right? That's sanctification. That's what God is doing in you and through you in your own hearts. He's changing them. And what happens? You start liking the things that God likes. You start hating the things that God hates. Your desires become, or his desires, not because they're forced. You're not faking it. You're not feeling pressure to feel that way. You actually genuinely feel that way. Does anybody have the power to do this to another human being? Any, anybody in here? 
You can't change, I mean, we, we've, I've talked about this before, right? You can't change what somebody else feels. I have three teenage daughters. <laughs> Do I need to go any further? I can't, one, one's an adult, just for clarity. It's still, yeah, anyway, sorry. <laughs> you can't change what somebody else feels, right? But God can. That's why we have hope in his power, because he can actually change what we feel. And so when we go, uh, my, my will isn't aligned, or, or I'm having conflict in this, or I'm struggling in this, we go, God, change how I feel about this. And he goes, I will. That's a prayer you can always pray, and he will always answer. You guys with me on this? If you say, God, I want to think the same way you think about this, he goes, now you're talking. And so what happens is not that the need goes away, right? You're still lacking the thing, whatever the thing is, but you don't care anymore about the thing. Or you see it in a different light. You see it from God's perspective. You see what God's doing in that situation or how whatever that person in your life or whatever the circumstance is, you go, no, I, I see this clearly for what it is. I'm not lacking anything. And so that's why David can be in a cave and he goes, we're not, I'm not lacking anything. Here he is. He's in a cave, you guys. He's lacking warmth. He's lacking lots of stuff. Lots of stuff. Especially compared to what we would even, I, I, I can't even go down our list of things that we have that David in a cave didn't have. but he didn't feel lack. Why? Because his will, his desires were aligned with God's desires. And so he goes, I don't care about that. It's not an issue to me. And all of a sudden, the thing that you were waiting for, longing for, becomes God himself and not the thing that's replacing God in your life. Look at verse 11. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Okay, there you go. That's what he says. That's what he says to do. Watch what you say. Watch your mouth. This is, this is part of this. this is, there's an obedience part of this. We don't have an excuse to say, well, if God wants to change my heart, I'm just going to sit right here, and I'm going to wait for him to change my heart. Because we could say that, right? God's so powerful. I'm clearly not. God, <laughs> when you change my heart, just let me know, and I'll, I'll get up and do something. That's not what he says. He's just like, go, do, be, live. Be my hands and feet. Go, glorify me. Build my kingdom. Speak. Pursue peace. Don't pursue division. Pursue peace. Go. Proclaim the gospel in your lives. This is what he's saying. He's like, live for me. And while you're doing that, I'm going to change your heart. It's a teamwork thing. 
right? We talk about this all the time. Like the fact that God uses jacked up people like us in the church to advance his kingdom is mind-blowing. It seems that there would be a lot of different ways that God could have gone about proclaiming the gospel and rescuing humanity. And he chose, for whatever reason, to use humanity to help save humanity. We have a job to do. And it's not your job. <laughs> it's not, it's not your, the thing that's getting you a paycheck. It's not your purpose, right? And this is what, where he's showing us this. And if you turn over to Ephesians, Paul echoes the same thing in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Listen to what he describes then, how we live our lives. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. I'm just going to stop there. The number of times I've talked to people about, like, I don't know what God's will is for me. This, this isn't saying, like, you're just going to know. There's it's a lot of complexities to that, right? When somebody comes and says, what do you think God wants out of this? I don't know. Let's, let's sit down and let's use our brains. Let's use our hearts. Let's, let's try to discern what God's will is. But that pursuit is in and of itself a prayer for wisdom and discernment from a God who will give it to us. Verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This this, then, is how we walk. Paul says, be careful how you walk. Be careful how you live your life. This is what he's describing here. And he's like, recognize God's power. Recognize who he is. And in light of who God is, you can have hope that he's going to change your heart, but you don't just sit back passively and let it get changed. You live for God's kingdom. And in that, he changes us. Third book point. Hope in God's ways. All right. You guys ready for this one? 15 through 18. Psalm 34, 15 through 18. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. God is not for everyone. That's what it says. You can drive down Racetrack Road, you can go to the Unitarian Church, and they will say that that's not the case. This is what we just read. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. If you get your Bibles out, underline that word toward. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Toward? Against. You see, we have hope 
in God's ways because he is for us. He's for us. For those who have recognized in their humility that they can't do anything on their own, that they need God to rescue them. That's who he's for, the righteous. Those who have trusted in Christ's righteousness, who have given Christ their sins and get, received Christ's righteousness. That's what Paul talks about in Romans, right? Those, those that are humble, those that understand that, who have placed their faith and trust in Christ, God is for. For the world who's rejected God, who has rejected the offer of his son, who has rejected his ways, his purpose, his plan, he is against. It doesn't sit well. And because it doesn't sit well, we don't talk about this and we change the words and we try to make it fluffy. We want God to give everybody a trophy. I'm serious. This is, this is how we feel. This is how we, like, we, we may not say it, but this is where we think and this is where we struggle because we go, that just doesn't seem right or fair. I just don't know. Like, but this is part of hoping in God's ways, the way that he works, that he is for those who are, that whom he has adopted and against those who have not confessed their faith in Christ, who have not in humility done that. So let me, let me reference James chapter 4, verse 6. But he gives great, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James quotes Proverbs when he says that. What, what do the humble receive? Grace. Undeserved merit. Those of us who go, God, I, I'm jacked up. I can't stop being jacked up. I wish I could. I want, I want my will to be your will. I want my desires to be your desire, but I, I can't make it happen. God, I, I need you. That's humility. That's it. That's, that's, the, that's, that's humility. But those who say, God, hang tight. I got this. Or let me clean myself up. Let me make myself good enough, and now God will love me more. God will respect me. I, I can do this on my own accord. And he goes, no, I sent you my son. Like, that was the point. That's why you have a cross in your church, right? Like, I sent you my son, and he died for your sins and gave you his righteousness. And because of that, if you reject that, you're against me, and I'm against you. I know that's not popular, but that's Scripture. And it's all throughout Scripture. Here's the beautiful part, though. Those that are against God can be for him. That's the good news. That's why we can go to anybody that's, that, that has ears to hear, that has eyes to see. We can go to them and say, repent, turn, trust in God. Be, confess him. And like that, God's for him. That's it. It's not like you got to go do something. You don't have homework and there's no classes to go to. You don't have to prove yourself. It's confession. It's faith. It's trust. 
And so as much as people can say, oh, that's horrible. I, I can't believe you would say that God is for some people and he's against some people. I'm like, well, he is. But you, you get to pick your team. <laughs> you get to pick who you're, you're for. Are you, are you for yourself and therefore against God? Or are you for God? And therefore against your feelings and emotions, your prerogatives, your own kingdom. And what does it look like if God is for you? Look at verses 19 through 21. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Everybody will be in affliction. You can't be delivered out of affliction if you weren't at first in affliction. You with me on this? Right? This is the logical, right? If, if God is delivering us out of affliction, then before that's happened, what are we in? Affliction. <laughs> but we have hope that God will deliver us out of affliction. Why? Because we're, we trusted in his son. We're adopted children of God. Those who are in affliction, who have no hope, what does God say is going to happen? The affliction will slay them. It will be their demise. They will not be able to recover from the affliction. Same circumstances for everybody. The difference is our hope in the character of God, in the power of God, and in the way that he operates, that he says, I'm going to deliver you out of affliction. I'm going to pluck you up out of that. I'm going to rescue you. And what, what, what did you do to deserve this? You said, God, I need to be rescued. But those who say, I don't need to be rescued... I got this. I don't need you. I don't need this crutch. I don't need God. I can, I can rescue myself. God goes, then rescue yourself. Good luck. I hope it works out. See the play on words there? It's not going to work, right? And that's his point. And so we can't go down this path of thinking, well, if I'm in affliction, then God must not like me. You see, one of the things that I think we've, we've kind of missed is that we take the metaphor of God as our father, and we've kind of, we've taken it further than it should go, right? Because God has created all of humanity. And it's not that God picks and chooses as he, as he goes, as, as like a father, like I can't pick my, my kids, right? Like, 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 if my kids, if some of my kids are, are better than other kids, I'll leave this vague and plural. <laughs> I can't say I'm for this kid and I'm against this kid, right? That's why I think we struggle with this, because that would be like, that's a horrible parent. The metaphor has gone too far. This is the sovereign God of all creation. And he has offered grace and mercy, and love, and adoption to those who in humility ask for it and go to God and declare, I need you. And he goes, here, I'm going to change your heart. It's a beautiful thing. 
And that's where we get to the very last verse. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Where's your hope? Where do you go take refuge? Because if you take refuge in Christ, if you take refuge in this God whose character is unchanging, whose power is immense, whose ways are beyond our ways, you will be redeemed, purchased. God purchases your life. You guys get this, right? And the cost was Jesus Christ. He goes, here, here's my son. I'm taking your life now. You are now mine. You are now adopted. You are my child. And I will protect you. I will deliver you. I will pluck you out of affliction. I will make you have no lack. I will remove all your fears. And we go, bring it. That sounds amazing. Let's pray.